You're listening to Blind Entrepreneurship, an interview series podcast that highlights the stories of the top business professionals around the world. In each episode, we explore how entrepreneurs overcame blindness in business in order to execute their vision. Today's episode is sponsored by Penji. Are you in charge of marketing for your business and need graphic design support? Let Penji design anything you need for your business, from a logo to your marketing materials, sales sheets, social media content, and so much more. Penji helps you achieve more with unlimited graphic design support, daily output, and a dedicated project manager, all at one flat monthly rate. We have an exclusive offer to the Blind Entrepreneur community. Head over to penji.co and use the coupon code BLIND for 15% off your first month. Again, that's penji.co, P-E-N-J-I dot C-O, and use the coupon code BLIND for 15% off your first month of Penji. And now, let's get to today's episode. Scott, welcome to the show. Oh, it's so great to be here. It's an absolute honor to have you uh, reading the book and watching uh, some of your speeches. It's, uh, it's, 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 going to be a really fun conversation. Um, so I have two two questions before we even begin. Number one, is it true that you were born in 1918? And also, <laughs> is it true that you completed the MIT challenge? So, um, you know what? I, I So there's actually a little story behind the 1918. No, uh, it was not. It was 70 years later, in fact, uh, 1988 was, my, was when I was born. Nice. But um, I think, I don't know where this is, but there's another Scott Young, uh, who's yeah. Neil Young's dad. I don't know if anyone knows this. this. Is Neil Young, the singer, songwriter. His dad, Scott Young, was a Canadian sports journalist. And I think he had also at some point been tagged as like an author for uh, Harper, who, who did my book, Harper Collins. <laughs> and somehow those profiles got mixed up. So for a while, uh, you know, deceased famous Canadian sports journalist and Neil Young's dad, Scott Young, was the author of my book online. So you look at it and you're like, he recently passed away and he's still writing books beyond the grave. Yeah. Um, So we're talking to a phantom ghost right now. That's funny. And Neil Young's Um, dad. So there you go. And Neil Young's dad, yeah, exactly. And um what about the MIT challenge? Let's talk about that. A right, bit. right. So this one, uh, this one is a little bit more substance. So this was a project that I took on about eight years ago. I just graduated from university. I'd actually studied business. And uh, I had always kind of wanted to learn computer science, but I'd kind of gone into business because I felt like, well, I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to own my own business. So I should study business. And then it was only after doing that for a couple of years, that I realized, oh, this is mostly training you to be a middle manager and it's not really about how you make things how do you actually make stuff and and then i was thinking about you know all the people that i really admire for start companies these are people who could make things programmers who understood technology this kind of thing and so i was even thinking of going back to school and like re-enrolling and getting tuition and i mean that's not a super appealing thought but it was something that you know i was serious about it and around this time i found mit posted some classes online uh, for free. And I just sort of stumbled into these and I thought, wow, these are actually really good. Like, you know, this is as good as any class that I'd taken in university. And so the gears kind of started spinning then. And I was wondering, has anyone ever tried to like 
simulate a degree, like simulate getting a computer science education, but not actually going to school, not actually do that, but just do it with these online resources. So this MIT challenge project kind of formed on that basis. And the idea was that I wanted to pass the final exams that MIT has for its uh, undergraduate curriculum in computer science and complete the programming projects. And uh, maybe, maybe because I was a little bit uh, cocky too at the time, but I had kind of been really interested in efficient learning and studying techniques in school and kind of talk about it a little bit by book, the sort of precursor story, but I decided to add to that challenge. I, I wanted to try to do it in a year. So it was a project that I started in um, October of 2011 and I, I finished uh, the last class in September of 2012. So I was able to do it in that time frame. That's absolutely incredible. I mean, and the reason why I asked that question in the beginning is to kind of set the tone and the premise of like how ridiculously smart you're, <laughs> you actually are. Uh, um, and, and I'm excited to kind of just try to at least break down as many aspects of that as possible and to kind of get more of a reference of some of the classes that you took you kind of recorded mm -hmm. everything on youtube to some degree right yeah i recorded updates on youtube um and i have like uh the materials that i use so the exams that i wrote and that kind of thing i scanned them and i put them up um on my website so i have all that kind of information up there but i was sort of making little vlogs at the time of updating my progress. So this was like eight years ago before, you know, live streaming was a thing. I just was making little YouTube videos. You were like the OG. I mean, I was watching some <laughs> of the, uh, some, some of them. I'm just like, holy crap, man. This is like, I need to, I need to like strap myself in for like, uh, like a roller coaster and just kind of strap myself in a seatbelt in order to just to enjoy the ride of, of, of watching the videos. Um, but it was like some really, really, really awesome stuff. Oh, thank um, you. But in the book, to kind of transfer over to the, to, to the book conversation, um, in the book, you kind of have like nine principles and we don't have to mm -hmm. go over all of these principles because obviously then what's the point of buying the book? Um, but you, you mentioned this term, um, hard skills, like mastering mm -hmm. hard skills and to people who have no idea like what that is. I, I kind of just want to break down the beginning first, lay that foundation yeah. and then we can kind of dive in a little bit deeper. So the thesis of the book was basically that there's going to be things that you learn in your life that are just going to come to you, right? There's going to be things that, they don't require that much effort. They don't require that much planning. You know, maybe you're trying to install a new faucet and you just, you know, look something up online, you do it and it's fine. But I think increasingly our world is being dominated by people who are learning things and mastering things that are not automatic. Things like, you know, learning a second or maybe a third language or things like learning how to program. I mean, if you didn't study computer science, how would you learn enough programming to be able to do that professionally? Um, if you are trying to learn skills, maybe they're skills for your life, things like you always wanted to learn guitar or you wanted to be a better public speaker, or they could be really practical skills like how do I become excellent at marketing? How do I really become a world-class expert at doing that? And it's not obvious. It's not obvious how you get really good at these kinds of skills. And so I wanted to write this book because learning really fascinates me. I, I wanted to have the opportunity to dive deep into the science of learning and stories of other people who have done things that are much more incredible than myself um, in learning hard subjects. But then at the same time, I feel this is a, an immensely practical skill to have because we live in a world where everything's getting more complicated. You have to use more software for your job now than you did, you know, 10 years ago. And before when everything was done with paper, I mean, 
you could just learn how to do it in college and then you'd be good when you're going to school. And now we're in a world where things are getting more and more complicated, things are getting more and more sophisticated. And if you are not keeping up, you're often getting left out. So the idea that you can, you know, just go and get a three-year diploma and you'll be set for life, it just, it's not our world anymore. And so we're living in a situation where, you know, even if you do decide to get a degree in computer science, you're gonna be constantly learning new technologies, new skills at your job. No matter what you do, you're gonna be having to upgrade those skills. And so I think, um, you know, even if it's something that personally fascinates me, I think it's something that's immensely practical to, to really anyone who's listening to this right now. So when I was kind of doing my due diligence and research, I kind of look at it from like two perspectives, right? There's the, mm -hmm. the studying, and then mm -hmm. there's the learning aspect mm -hmm. of it. And you discussed the idea of like these philosophies um, mm -hmm. in a way that you study. And, and so how do you compartmentalize the studying aspect versus the learning aspect? Yeah, so to me, studying is a narrower activity than learning. Um, so I think for a lot of people, they're kind of synonymous. If people say, oh, learning and studying, those are kind of the same thing. Are you learning is something you do in school. But if you look at actual like psychological research, it's clear that like learning is something that's happening constantly. So even just this conversation we're having, the fact that you remember what you told me 10 minutes ago, and so you can have a you know coherent conversation with me, means that something had to happen in your brain so you can remember what we just talked about, you know? So mm -hmm. to be able to function in the world means that you have to be able to learn. Like you have to constantly be remembering what did you do already today? Where are you going in the future? These sorts of basic things. And so the idea that we restrict it to this kind of thing that happens in school is probably false. Now, studying, I think, is probably more the word I would use to describe how people kind of commonly think about learning, which is, you know, you, you go to school and you have to prepare for a test and often it involves memorizing some things, maybe understanding some concepts. Uh, you know, doing something pencil and paper in an exam. So it's a little bit of a narrower activity. And so when I'm talking about learning in this book, I'm not talking about just, you know, obviously the how do you remember what you said in a conversation earlier, that kind of automatic stuff. But how do you deal with learning when you fail at learning, when you try to speak a language mm. and you fail, or when you try to learn a new skill and you can't figure it out and it's super frustrating. But at the same time, I'm not trying to be focused too much on studying, which is often kind of tailored to how do you learn in school and how do you pass exams? I mean, those things are important, but I think a lot of the things that we care about are actually being good at stuff and not really necessarily, you know, do you know the capital cities of every single one of the states or something like that? Yeah. And I think you talk about this as well, the approach and how important you, when you approach something and kind of to what you said earlier, beating yourself up, right? Cause I, I'm just going to speak candidly. It's something that I do myself is I constantly beat myself up and bring myself down. But I also believe that maybe I'm just not approaching it correctly. Could you mm -hmm. tell us from like, a, I guess from a personal standpoint, maybe from how you do it, or maybe how you suggest other people to do it, when people are embarking on a new adventure to learn, or even if, if, if it's something that they're constantly doing on like a routine basis in their everyday life, what are some healthy practices and approaches that we can take in order to make sure that you know, we're, we're maximizing our learning capabilities? Yeah, so there's uh, lots of different principles we can do and talk about in terms of, you know, what ingredients do you need to be able to successfully learn something or to be effective at it. 
But I think one of the really basic points, and I think it's one that's often missed, is that very few people look at, okay, I'm going to go learn something. What is the approach that I should take? Like, should I actually spend a little bit of time researching that and looking that up? So I think that's something that, um, you know, there's even some uh, research in, in psychology of people who look at adults uh, who are taking on learning projects and the research is that people don't do this. They don't actually go out and see like, what are the alternatives? Would it be better to use this book or that book? Should I approach it this way or that way? People don't do any of this research. They just kind of go with whatever the first option presents itself. And I mean, that's fine for lots of things. Maybe, you know, you will learn it fine the first time you approach it, but particularly for the things you struggle with, I think that lack of exploration of what the alternatives are can be a real problem. So I know for language learning, for instance, many of the kind of first pick choices that people do, I think are terrible. <laughs> and because they're terrible, people tend to view the problem with themselves or with the subject. So the reason they're not performing is either that the subject itself is just really, really hard. And so, you know, maybe it's just too hard for them or they're not that good at it. They don't have the quote unquote language gene or something. And so that's why they can't learn this language. When, you know, for me as an outsider perspective, looking at this, I'm like, well, no, this, this thing that you're doing to learn is not going to work. And that's why, that's why you're struggling with this is that this is really inefficient. And so I think there can be a mix of different reasons why something is challenging, but I think certainly under researching and under preparing for um, learning is often one of those is just that you don't realize that you're using an approach that just isn't going to get you to your destination. Yeah. It, without, I, I don't think there's ever going to be a cookie cutter scenario of like mm -hmm. how you can learn something. Um, but from the idea of language, and I'll just give you a very perfect example. Yeah. I was actually reading, you talk about France uh, mm -hmm. or French. I forget exactly where I, 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 I took this information from. Yeah. Um, but I was actually reading a lot of your researching in France. I just came back from France. And mm. I was like, man, I really wish that I was able to learn this language. And then I opened your book and it's just like, boom. <laughs> you know, or like I watched your video, boom. Yeah. Boom. It, it talks about it in detail. So like, I guess from that perspective, I guess rel relatively yeah. selfish question, but like, what would you, what would you recommend to somebody that's just trying to understand anything, let alone a language? Like what should be that, that approach or what should be that first step in order for them to just further understand or, or grow their, their knowledge? Right. So I'll use language learning as kind of a way of illustrating some of these general principles. But even if you're listening right now and you're, you're not interested in learning Spanish or something like that, don't worry. I think that these principles are pretty universal, but I think it makes sense to examine them in this kind of concrete situation first. So I think one of the major reasons that people struggle to learn languages is that they don't actually use it to communicate. And this is shows up actually not just in language learning, but in many, many areas, there's this what's known as the problem of transfer um, in the psychological literature. And basically what it means is that when you learn something in one situation, say in a classroom, and then you want to apply it in a different situation, let's say in real life, there's a lot of evidence showing that this often doesn't work as well as we would like it to. So there's studies that show, for instance, that 
if you studied economics, that it doesn't necessarily make you better at reasoning on economic questions than people who didn't study economics. Um, there's other studies that show people who took a high school psychology class didn't do better at a later college level psychology class than people who had never taken you know, an intro class before, which is surprising because this is the kind of thing you'd expect from learning. But the idea basically is that a lot of the learning that you do in school maybe just doesn't transfer that well to the situations that you care about. And I think this is particularly true for learning a language because often what you're doing in a classroom is you're sitting down and you're listening to someone and you're writing down maybe notes and maybe you're conjugating some things, but very rarely are you having a lot of practice in the class. You're not actually practicing conversations and you're not nearly doing it enough to the point where you'd actually be able to do it fairly well. And so this can, I think, become a pervasive problem. And I, I think this is, you know, that's, that's in a classroom situation, which I mean, if you do spend a couple years in a classroom, maybe in university learning Spanish, you'll probably be able to speak it a little bit. But I think it's even worse for things like Duolingo, where you're just tapping buttons on your phone, and this is not really that much like actually speaking a language. So there's this principle that I talk about in the book, which is directness, which is the idea that if you are learning something, because there's these issues with transfer, then you should always be thinking, okay, what's the situation where I would like to use this skill and then do practice or at least some of your time do practice in a situation that's actually like that. So if you're learning a language, the way to start would be to try to structure in some simple conversations very early on. And this is surprisingly something that a lot of people don't do. So they spend months and months studying, maybe they're playing with their phone, maybe they're attending a class and writing down things but they're not actually interacting with someone. And I think that's a major issue because then they go to transfer the knowledge and they find that it's actually really difficult to have a conversation with someone and they can't stitch together all the things that they learn and then they sort of beat themselves up. But the problem is that they, they weren't doing it that way. So that would be one really big uh, principle that I think applies to everything, but particularly to language learning. The, the idea behind technology and that human interaction I mean, I feel like from, from a personal standpoint, I've used technology to remember and to remind myself of so many things. And the minute that I was able to add a human element to it, my, my personal life has changed. And do you find that to be true? I mean, I, I know that it's it stated in fact on research in the book, but could you just tell us a little bit more about just how important or maybe some other stories about how important it is to, for that transfer? Uh, could you could you elaborate a little to, bit to occur from like a from a human element like you said you said um just now that the transfer of using it and applying it in everyday life mm -hmm. is is what's going to allow you to learn but then there's also like the idea behind like a duolingo as you mentioned where it's just technology driven and you're not mm -hmm. necessarily yeah. able to apply it um, so I, I think i think you're right i think it's particularly true for learning a language because the ultimate goal is a kind of human interaction right your yeah. goal is not to get really good at duolingo right, <laughs> your goal true. is to have a conversation with someone and so this idea of transfer quite simply is that when we think about the problem is that when we talk about something like learning spanish we kind of think about it in a sort of abstract sort of general category okay i'm just going to learn spanish i'm going to learn some words in spanish or learn some phrases but the problem is that as an actual skill it's quite a bit more specific than that so it's not really enough to just know what a word is so you know like agua means water in spanish 
it's not enough to know that. It's that you need to be able to recall the word in a situation where you want to use water and you need to be able to string it together in a sentence and you need to be able to move your mouth and lips to produce the sound. And so there's a lot of different elements that come together in order to actually be able to use this knowledge. And if you're not testing all of those elements, if you're not actually practicing all those elements, it's a little bit like, it's a little bit like if you went to go to the gym and you, you know, you only do workout for your forearms, let's say, and then you go in a wrestling match and well, maybe your forearms are really strong, but the rest of your body's really weak. So you still get pinned pretty easily. And so mm -hmm. I think that's a, that's a kind of way that you can think about it a little bit, just that when we learn things, often we're not being specific enough. And so the, the way that we're learning it doesn't match the actual situation. So the Duolingo example, the main thing that I think is missing in a lot of the Duolingo exercises that they have you go through is that you don't actually have to recall the words that you need and the phrases you need from memory. Instead, what they're doing is just presenting with you a list of words in a word bank and you need to recognize them. You need to be like, oh yeah, that's the one for water, that one right there. But that's actually a much easier task than pulling it up from memory. So if you have a multisyllabic word, for instance, it might be easy to spot that because it doesn't look like any of the other words you've learned, but it might be a lot harder to remember to say that accurately enough for someone to understand you. And so you can do lots of Duolingo exercises and get really good at recognizing those words, but if when you're having a conversation with someone, someone doesn't give you the word bank to fill in the conversation, you're done. You can't actually recall and pronounce it and string it together into sentences. And so this is the fundamental problem. I think technology is related to it in the fact that sometimes with technology, you're kind of unnecessarily simplifying what you're trying to learn. But I think the deeper problem is just that what you're actually practicing is kind of incomplete. It doesn't really match up with the real situation. And so you can even yeah. see this in situations where you know, you, you're learning something from a business book or you're learning something in a classroom and you can learn to apply it in these kind of contrived exercises, but you can't actually apply it in real life because there's these additional complexities. I actually want to touch on the idea behind applying and it has nothing to do mm -hmm. with learning, but it was something that I was thinking about and, and I really want to get your opinion on. Sure. And it's more so the idea of um, what you've done in the past and what you've learned from it and then applying it into the future, but at the same time, remembering the lesson that you learned from the past. Because a lot of times that I see, and these are just people that I've talked to as friends that I've given advice to as startups, they kind of make the same mistakes over and over again without truly mm. learning from them. And yeah. I think there's like a couple of ideas behind that. There's like, well, you know, you're just doing the hamster wheel or you just keep spinning and spinning. And then there's other aspect of like, you're actually, you know, the answer, but you continue choosing the wrong solution. So could, could you kind of yeah. like speak to that a little bit and expand on that for us, please? Well, I think learning from experience is always hard because really, when you think about it, you have a very limited experience and the number of, you know, possible theories that would match up with your experience is way, way larger than the amount of experience you've had. So this is really, I think, 
quite a general problem with learning that I would say that we don't even have a really good theory of how people do this in general. So for instance, when we're doing training computers to spot images of a dog, let's say from like Google images, we give them like billions of pictures, well maybe not billions, millions of pictures at the very least of dogs and vary them in all sorts of subtle ways so that the computer can be like, after a million times seeing a dog, it knows what a dog looks like. Whereas people, you can see it, show them a dog once and they can recognize a dog. So there's still kind of a sense that we don't really understand how people are able to do that. And yeah. so I think there's a sense that theoretically, at least, we're not quite sure how people are able to form the correct intuitions of things. And so I think what your point is, and I think what can often be the case, is that sometimes you don't get the lesson from your experience that other people do. So you see someone, for instance, and they procrastinate, and they procrastinate, and they procrastinate. And then they go and they finally do it and they kind of screw it up because they rushed it. Well, in your mm. mind, maybe the lesson was obvious is that you should have started working on it earlier. But in this person's mind, maybe he drew some completely different lesson, like the class was unfair or you know something else from that. And so right. part of it, I think, is just how do you derive the right lessons from your life experience? And I think that's very hard. And then I think there's also a problem of let's say you do derive the right lesson. So you do figure out that, okay, I should, you know, prepare a little bit ahead of time. I shouldn't wait to the last moment to do this kind of task. How do you actually change your behavior? How do you actually adjust the things that you're doing? And so I think that can often result in where people make the same mistakes over and over again, because in some sense, we're not always guided by rational processes. We're guided by our emotions. We're guided by these kind of little subconscious heuristics we've picked up about how to live our lives and it, unless you sort of can consult those and look at those which is often very difficult you may not change your underlying behavior so i think it's a really interesting kind of problem of not only how are we able to make these inferences but once we make them how do we actually you know act on them how do we actually learn from our mistakes have you found that You'd also, uh, from your research or experience, have you found that there also has to be a want within all that? that oh, you, motivation? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. like a motivation aspect. Well, I mean, this it. is kind of one of the sort of big parts of, of my own uh, book and my own writing. And I think this is something, a topic that I, I'd like to explore in kind of future work is this idea of motivation because we often think about motivation as being kind of, well, you just have to be motivated enough. But then you get this kind of bootstrapping problem of like, well, what if you, what if you're not motivated enough? Or what if you're not sure whether you're motivated enough? You know, sometimes there's projects that you think you're really motivated and you kind of don't do very well in them. And so why is that? Why are you not able to always do the things that you think you should or sustain that motivation over the long haul? And so I think there's a sort of kind of side uh effect of this that when I'm looking at some of these stories in this book of people who just accomplished incredible learning goals, certainly some of their, uh, you know, prowess is in their learning ability that they're very tenacious learners and they know how to overcome these uh, cognitive obstacles. But a lot of it is how do they manage their emotions and how do they manage the sort of, you know, you're embarking on something very difficult. How do you sustain that motivation for, you know, months, years at a time? Yeah. I mean, from an emotion, from an emotion standpoint, how long did it take you or did it even, or was it something that you believe that you're mm -hmm. just born with this idea to kind of compartmentalize everything and kind of like look at things logically rather than, <laughs> you know, just going full force and kicking a door down and 
trying to get what you want. I don't, I don't know whether I'm actually that logical as a person. I mean, I do, I do like to analyze things and be analytical, but I wouldn't say that like, I'm kind of coldly rational in how I pursue things. Mm-hmm. Like emotions play a huge role in, in how I pick projects and, and how I decide how I'm going to approach things. Like, you know, the reason I did the MIT challenge wasn't that I like did some kind of economic cost benefit analysis for that. It was just, I, I kind of had wanted to learn this subject for a while. So I had an intrinsic interest in it. And then just somewhere the idea came of like, has anyone ever done this before? And it, mm-hmm. I remember at the time, the way I felt was that like, everyone's going to be doing this in the future. Like, why are people going to go to school when you could do this? And so um, at the time I was just like, is, you know, how has it been that no one's tried to do this before? And so the excitement of trying to do something and be kind of the first person to do it meant that, you know, I was so motivated that I was, I was really worried I was going to get scooped. I was worried that like, I'm going to find out halfway through that someone else's, oh, this person was working on it before me and they, they, you know, (laughs) and then my, my project gets diminished as a result. And so I think you need that motivation. You need those emotions. And I think you need to base your decisions on emotions too, because if you just sort of, okay, this is why I have to do this and you feel nothing about it, well, you're not going to be able to go forward. You're not going to be able to pursue it. So I think in many times our emotions actually really encapsulate this really intelligent decision-making that, you know, when you don't feel like doing something, I don't want to say that that's always the correct response. We all know that we procrastinate, we do the wrong choice. But I think the, the wrong way to view that is that it's just completely irrational and that the emotion has nothing to do with you know, any kind of sound reasoning, very often it does encapsulate some kind of intuition you have about the thing that you're pursuing and the right approach. And so I often find when I design a project and I invest the effort, I get more motivated to work on it because as I start resolving problems, as I start seeing like, well, this was going to be an issue, but then I found a way to get around that. You get more Mm -hmm. excited about it because it seems like, oh, this might actually work. This, this cool thing that you're thinking, you might actually be able to do it. And so the planning process, I think, is a very important thing, not only just for the motivate, uh, not only just for like actually figuring out what you're going to do, but for, for kind of cultivating that emotion about it. Something that I've, I've actually, and this has nothing to do with the book, by the mm-hmm. way. And, and so, but, but something <laughs> sure. that I've always thought about was the idea of like, what are the actual motivating factors mm-hmm. for people to do things? Is it, yeah. you know, for you at that time, it was nobody did it and I wanted to do it and see if I could physically do this, not only as like a goal for yourself, but I'm yeah. sure there's other things as well. And there's other people who like start businesses because they want to prove people wrong. Um, <laughs> and, and like, have you ever, I mean, I don't know if you've, mm-hmm. if you've done enough research, this might be too early of a question, but well, have you talked to people to see like where, where, what their motivating I like, factors were? I think one of the things that we have to separate here is that there's the reason you tell yourself you're doing something, mm. but that may not be the reason you're actually doing it. Mm-hmm. And I think that the reasons we actually do things are often not the descriptions we give of them, that rather mm-hmm. we get certain feelings from things and we get those feelings I don't know where they come from. They come from past experiences, maybe just mm-hmm. the way that we're hardwired. I mean, some people get really interested in something that other people find boring. And you know, who's to explain that? Well, maybe just their brain is set up in a certain way that they do find that really interesting. 
but I think those emotions encapsulate some kind of logic about the world. It's just that we don't always know what the reasons are. And so I think yeah. it can often be, you know, obviously we can write down our reasons and put those things, but I think it's often to be, it's often good to kind of recognize that that's somewhat different from the, the actual maybe motivating impulses and urges of our behavior. So I think that um, one of the things that I try to do before projects is just sort of have these checks on my own motivation. So I, I when I'm thinking about it, you know, I incubate projects for a long time. I know there's kind of a popular piece of the wisdom is like, well, just get started. Like, you know, don't, don't waste any time planning or delaying. <laughs> and I actually think that that's stupid advice. I think that you should, yeah. the harder a project is, the more you should incubate it because you want to know that the way you feel about it is stable, that you're not just sort of hyped up in one moment. And then you're like, ah, actually that's, that doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you need more time to kind of think through some of the, the difficulties of it. Like none of the projects that I've done certainly have kind of, come into fruition sort of in one moment they've kind of been an evolving process where you kind of oh maybe this and maybe that and and you get more excited about it and then when you're starting presumably you're excited enough that you can tackle something that's actually really challenging and you don't back down from it when it gets difficult do you think it's difficult to kind of change your original way of thinking in into like a i guess a more understanding and and open-minded and, and, and learning aspect of it. And if you need me to give you like a personal yeah, maybe example. Give you, me, maybe give me an example so I can know exactly like how to respond to you. And this is just what's popped in yes. my head um, based off of me um, seeing family in the holidays. My, yeah. my mom is a relatively negative individual and I love mm -hmm. her to death, right? But yeah. her, her first reaction is to kind of go negative and living with an individual like that for, you know, 20 something years or so, um, that negativity kind of passes on to you. Mm -hmm. And now you live your life in a way where your first reaction at times is to kind of think negatively. It, it doesn't happen anymore, but yeah. I just kind of want to hear your perspective of it. And so now you're living with this person, you're around this person, you're getting their energy, you're getting their mm -hmm. thought process and their thinking and their learning. And then now you pass that on, you move away and you do what you got to do in your life and you become an adult. Now you, you see yourself becoming that version of that. And now you have to retrain and reteach your whole body to become a version of yourself and not the person that you surrounded yourself with. Mm. Does that so, make any sense? To yeah, you? no, it does make sense. So the two things I would say is, and this is something that's uh, maybe somewhat disappointing, but I think is, is very important to recognize as well is that. Uh, especially when it comes to family, we often make the idea that it was sort of our kind of proximity to these people that has mm -hmm. left some residue on us. But the the research on like parenting and twin studies and stuff in terms of like core personality traits is that um, it's it's probably not from that. It's probably a, mm. probably some inherited genetic component that you know something about you know perhaps your mother's makeup. I don't know her as an individual, so I don't want to speculate too much, but. No, of course. Uh, makes of course. her makes her in and have certain thought patterns, but that you inherited quite a bit of that uh, from her just genetically. That it mm. maybe predisposes you to similar thought patterns, and so I I don't want to say that like you know when people are oh well I'm like my mother because my my mother raised me in a certain way or like my father in this way. It may it may be even more basic than that. That even if you were raised by someone else, you may be like your biological parents, and and mm -hmm. the other um, so the other thing I would say about that is that my own personal sort of view of it is that we have actually quite limited past experiences in our lives. 
Um, and so this kind of goes to what you were saying earlier, where we're like, why don't we infer the right things from our experiences? And it's because it's very hard to infer the right things from our experiences. So can you learn a language? Well, it doesn't mean that you've done anything approaching a scientific proof that you can or can't learn a language. Maybe you tried it for like a month and it didn't work. And so that's your, that's your example that now you, you think you can't do that. And so my uh, personal opinion is that we actually know relatively little about ourselves. We don't really know what we're good at. We don't really know what mm. we could be good at. We don't know what we could learn, what we couldn't learn. And so the idea I think I find of, of ultra learning is, and, and sort of my philosophy in general is to try to expose yourself to some examples that are outside of the range of your previous experience. So going and doing something that it's not like the way you've done things before. It's not the same thing you did every single time. And once you have that one sort of example that pushes outside of that, now your perspective shifts. So for me, I think a big reason I also wanted to do this MIT challenge when I did it was because I really wanted to see whether this was something that, you know, I could actually follow through. But then once you've done it, it kind of goes from being, well, maybe I could do it to like, well, of course you could do that. <laughs> and then mm -hmm. of course it translates to other things. So I can even say for learning languages before I had ever learned another language and, and I was an adult before I, I learned to speak another language. Um, I, I kind of had this idea that someone else was fluent in another language. This was almost sort of a magical ability and now the way I feel about it is that it just feels very kind of humdrum. It's sort of like, well, yeah, of course you can learn another language. You just have to do this, this, and that. And so I think anyone who's like tried to set up a business before or they've tried to accomplish anything in their life and they've succeeded, that becomes this reference point that they use for future projects. And so I think consciously trying to create those reference points for yourself to go out and do things that are scary and are hard and are kind of outside of what you think is possible right now but you get these experiences that you, you know, you don't have in your background and you, they become these reference points, these anchors for you in, in future things you would try to do in life. I love it. This is, you, you mentioned this a couple uh, questions ago, but you talked about the idea of planning mm -hmm. and I'd like to kind of hear how you plan and yeah. how you go about your day and check things off and make sure everything is, is done correctly. So how, how do you, how do you plan yourself? So I would say the, the starting point, and I think the background of this idea, which I think is important to express is that I'm the kind of person that I have like too many things that I want to do. <laughs> and I, I think there's a lot of people who are like that, that if you mm -hmm. ask them, okay, what things would you like to do? You know, they want to learn Spanish. They want to learn guitar. They want to improve their business. They want to do this. There, there's all these kind of ideas bubbling around in their head. And so for me, I'm never in a position where I'm like, for, well, I don't know. I don't know what I want to do. I, I don't have any interests. Like I, I'm not one of those people. And so maybe this advice doesn't apply to you. If you, if you feel like you genuinely have no interests, you just, you don't want to do anything. You don't want to work on anything. But if you have a lot of things that you want to do, I think that this is where you actually need to counteract that tendency to like, you know, just rush into doing things a little bit. And I think that very often the problem is that a lot of the things that you want to do, it sounds like you want to do them when you're thinking about them, but then when you're doing them, it's hard and it's frustrating and you want to give up. <laughs> mm -hmm. You want to stop doing that thing. And so I think this is why kind of 
preparing yourself emotionally is so important because if you can kind of anticipate psychologically the difficulties that you're going to encounter when you're working on something and you visualize and you imagine yourself overcoming those difficulties and this is not something that you do like a five minute warm-up before you get started on a year-long project this is something you're thinking about maybe for weeks or maybe even months before you start then when you actually get to planning and you get to these difficulties you get to these frustrating points you kind of go through them. They're not actually as hard as you thought they were. So uh, the example for me that really stands out is um, language learning because my friend and I, we decided to go on this project where we were going to travel to four countries, learn four different languages, uh, Spanish, Portuguese, uh, Mandarin, and Korean. And the idea or the kind of conceit of the project was that when we would land in these countries, we wouldn't speak in English to each other or to people we've met. And, and I have some pretty good reasons. And I think also personal experiences says that this is a very effective approach for learning a language, but obviously you can imagine right when you land in that country, that's a very difficult moment of how do I, how do I not break? How do I stay, stay on this plan that is, you know, going to be maybe, maybe it's weeks, maybe it's months, maybe it's the entire year is just painful. And how do you stick through that? And so a lot of it was just sort of kind of imagining these situations okay like how am i going to handle this what am i actually going to have okay well i'll have google translate with me so i'll be able to use that and like you, you kind of prepare for this mentally so that when you actually get in this situation it's fine it, like it wasn't actually that hard it was it was just if i hadn't prepared though if i just said okay you know you and i we're just going to speak right now completely in you know some language that neither of us speak maybe polish or something like that or uh, or Hungarian yeah. <laughs> or whatever, um, maybe that's going to be uh, too difficult because we haven't done that kind of mental preparation. So I think um, planning for me is a lot about that kind of emotional, psychological preparation. Of course, I think there's also a benefit of you know, getting the right books, getting the right resources, picking the right strategy. But I think that sort of mental preparation is, is at least as big a part of it. Yeah. Do you, uh, just curious, like from a physical standpoint, do you have any type of like, um, uh, like a copy book or like, a, um, things that you jot down or apps that you particularly use? I know that you talked about, you know, a couple of saying that they may not necessarily work, but I know our audience loves those mm -hmm. like nuggets, those things that you just can't live without. Could you give us at least one of them? Yeah. So uh, for me, my, my sort of overall approach to planning when I'm talking about projects like these is pretty simple. I usually just do it on pencil and paper, um, mm -hmm. kind of work out my plan. Uh, in terms of tools for learning, I would say that um, one of the tools that, you know, and there's lots of these that you can use, but I think I, some of the examples of tools that are quite beneficial are things like uh, space repetition software is really good when you have to memorize a lot of things. So for language learning, it's, it's, it's huge. It can be very important for things like that. I would say that um, I, I also, when I'm actually in the process of doing things, I, I use, you know, to-do lists and, and calendar software and things like that to kind of keep myself on schedule. So if a project has different phases, I put all the deadlines in on my calendar and then I can kind of see, okay, where am I relative to where I want to be? But I would say in terms of technology, I'm actually probably a little bit on the technology light end. Uh, I, I'm not as, I know some people have like, they really go into the weeds with getting sophisticated stuff. For me, I tend to use them for specific purposes, but I think, again, that kind of internal mental component is what, uh, what I think really drives results. I want to ask one final question and sure. it's something that I think is um, 
I think is important, but I would just want to hear from you um, the idea behind reading 30 minutes before bed. Mm, yeah, um, yeah. Could you kind of speak to that? And, you know, is it, is it, is it actually as important as, as you, you may say? Well, I think I like it for two reasons. One is that if you're like me, I sometimes have difficulty falling asleep at night. Um, you know, some people don't, but that's for me. I, I can sleep in easily, but I, I fall asleep uh, slowly. And so one of the reasons for that is that you have this circuit in your brain that um, runs on melatonin and it tells you what your circadian rhythms are and it makes you sleepy when it's nighttime. But unfortunately, we live in a world where there's a lot of light all the time, even in the night. And so it kind of tricks our brain into thinking it's still daytime. And this can prolong the onset of feeling sleepy. And this is particularly true with the kind of light that comes from screens, because it tends to be aimed at kind of the bluer wavelengths of light. And so reading, or if you prefer listening to an audiobook, I don't, I don't think there's anything uh, strictly better about reading a paper book, um, can kind of be a way of not only, you know, reducing the amount of light, so you're, you're kind of adjusting your sleep rhythms, you're relaxing. Um, it's also an activity that is not quite as stimulating. So if you're reading a kind of a deep book, you know, maybe after half an hour, you do feel sleepy and you do feel like taking a nap <laughs> and going to bed. But then I think the other thing too is that, you know, we live in an age right now where a lot of stimulation and entertainment is cheap and easy. And I'm not really one of these people that says that, you know, if this is evil and you should never be on like Facebook or Twitter or anything like that. But I do feel like for a lot of us, we use it way more than we'd like. And, and we would like to be, you know, we would like to read books. We would like to, you know, explore deeper ideas and to have sort of deeper, more meaningful experiences. And so I think you have to be kind of deliberate about that. You can't just expect that it's going to happen. And so I think one of the easiest places to put in reading in your day is right before you go to bed, because any other moment you might be interrupted, you might have something, you know, colleague comes and interrupts your break and says, you have to work on this project. You've got kids screaming in the other room. You've got all sorts of things that might interfere with your life, but you know, going to go to bed. Okay. Half an hour spend reading. You can get quite a bit of reading done. And I think that can be a really beneficial habit. I, I try to do it as much as possible. Yeah. That's awesome. And I hope that the people that are listening could, uh, could begin to adopt that. Um, how can, Scott, how can people learn more about you, your story? How can people buy the book? Um, or at least just understand your philosophies and where you're coming yeah. from? Well, if, you're, if you've enjoyed this conversation, um, you can check out my website at scotthyoung.com. That's S-C-O-T-T-H-Y-O-U-N-G.com. And I've got over a thousand articles. I've been writing for over a decade there. I've got even my own podcast where I narrate articles and interview some of my friends who are authors. And, um, you know, you can check out that website. In addition, the book is Ultra Learning. I, I go into a lot more detail in, in how you can learn effectively, master hard skills, outsmart the competition, accelerate your career. It's available Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, wherever you get your book. Um, also, uh, it's an audible narrated by me. So if you're not sick of listening to my voice, by now, <laughs> you can also uh, get the book that way. And and listen and and you know i'd love to hear what people end up doing as a result so if you if you read any of my articles or you even after this podcast you're sort of inspired to take on a, a new learning project please uh, reach out and email me i'd love to hear what you do 
Very cool. And all the links will be in the show notes. Uh, I must say, and I, and I truly don't say this often, I think your book is a, a must read. So this episode is going to be out in 2020. I think it's going to be a good start to the year if you read this book. So uh, Scott, thank you so much for your time. We, we greatly appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Blind Entrepreneurship. Your time, energy, and attention mean the absolute world to me. Thank you. Because you're still listening, even though the episode is technically over, that means that you're a super listener, and you care even further about what I have to say, and that means even more to me. And because of that, I'd love to be able to give you a small gift. As you know, I am the co-founder of Penji, and I personally believe that Penji is one of the best creative services on the planet. It gives you the ability uh, to free up your time in order for you to focus more on your business so you let us do all the graphic design support and all the graphic design help in an on-demand fashion. And because you're listening to this portion of the episode, I'd love to be able to give you 50% off of your first month of Penji. In order to do that, all you have to do is enter the coupon code TBE show. That's TBE show for 50% off. Again, I truly believe that Penji is revolutionizing the creative industry. And if you feel at any point in time that your business is not getting the graphic designs that you deserve, or if you ever feel like you're paying too much for your graphic design team or your freelancers, or you're finding it difficult to find reliable talent, we loved for you to give us a try. And again, that is TBE show for the coupon code. And as always, I have to end every conversation with the key phrase that it started it all. Go out there and execute your vision, everybody. Have a great rest of your day.